This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mark Bailey, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Germ, pleasure to be here. Um, I am drinking coffee for a change because you live in Middle Earth, and so our time zones are completely out of whack. So it's now in the morning for me, and I know that you're drinking beer. Is that your own? Yeah, well, you're making me look bad here because... I, I thought you needed me to come on with a drink and I didn't realize I'd be drinking alone, but, um, <laughs> tell me more about that. I know that you make craft beer. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, I've been making beer for probably about six years now. And that, that one there, that's one of my IPAs. It's a, um, it's a pretty meaty beer, like a lot of malt, a lot of hops, um, you know, nothing like the uh, commercial muck that you get. So, yeah, I mean, I don't drink a lot of beer, but um, when I was a full-time athlete in my 20s, I had an entire decade where I didn't touch a drop of alcohol, nothing. Mm. So nowadays when people see me drinking a beer, they, a lot of my old friends can't believe it. They, um, they think it's really strange. But no, I've got a, um, you know, my wife, Sam, uh, saw me start to make beer and the first few times I did it in the kitchen and she said no <laughs> this is not good you need your <laughs> own space to do this activity so we, we've got quite a big shed it was a work shed under our house and I converted it to a little brewery and uh, I, I sent you that picture you probably saw yes. it and a, a lot of people think it, it looks like something out of Breaking Bad like uh, <laughs> lab that uh, he was using, Walt was using. So yeah, no, it's um yeah, it's a good pursuit, and it's a it's an example of um, using germs or microbes in the right way. Mm. I mean, if we uh, they're really in sync with us, and they they work for us. And uh, you know, when I make the wort and get it all ready, and then drop the yeast in, I've got trillions of little helpers making my beer and it's fantastic i have to now make an excuse to fly over to new zealand to taste this beer yeah that would be great yeah i mean the thing is it's just really funny too because often when someone comes over and you say would you like to try one of my homemade beers it's <laughs> sort of really and they have this bad experience usually from when they were students or something yeah. and they were trying to make um gallons of beer on the cheap and almost universally there's this you know anxious sip that they take and then they they say this is unbelievable i mean home brewing has reached such high standards uh it, it is the, the equipment and everything that you can get these days and the, the strains of yeast the malts it's yeah it's a, it's top quality product so please come over and we'll uh, have a craft beer the, the reason why you're beer is so good is because there's nothing else to do in New, in New Zealand. I mean, I've been to Australia and they are serious drinkers, but they're also on the far end of the earth. You're even further. Yeah. I mean, the Australians, they drink a lot more beer than New Zealand per capita. They, they certainly do. Uh, but no, yeah, no, there's nothing 
nothing happening in New Zealand. I wouldn't suggest anyone in the world come here. There's, there's already, as you know, there's way too many people here. It's very overpopulated and we're running out of space. So oh, yeah, nothing, come nothing, no, nothing to see here. Other than maybe hobbits and Jacinda Ardern. Well, we don't see a lot of Jacinda Ardern. I, I, she spends more time out of the country than, than in the country. So, yeah, but uh, no, did we I do. We, did I say her name wrong? Ardern, sorry. Ardern. Am I, is my uh, emphasis uh, on the wrong syllable? <laughs> well, you know, this whole thing. I mean, we love the South African uh, accent here. And you probably know there's, there's actually mm. a lot of South Africans in New Zealand. Uh, it's a mm. real mixture here. We we import uh, the Brits, uh, the yes. the Irish, the South Africans. So yeah, but uh, no, no, we're familiar with your your accent. So no, we know exactly what you're saying. Mark Bailey, we are back from <laughs> from the power cut. A few hours later, and your beer's finished. Yeah, yeah. In case people are wondering whether there was a, a glitch in the matrix, my beer is gone. <laughs> got water so, now <laughs> so in the time between this conversation and the one earlier before the before the blackout it was a few hours <laughs> that's why our clothes yeah. are still the same <laughs> yeah yeah we had to quickly go to the mirror make sure we uh had everything looking exactly the same so yeah the virus challenge is really about settling the virus debate uh, is what we're calling it because the this pastime that's developed of people getting into these sparring matches about whether pathogenic viruses exist or not, it just seems to be going nowhere. And uh, so the idea with the statement was that we just put together a two page document outlining what we think the problems are, which is that we don't think the virologists have shown adequate evidence for the existence of viruses. And then we also pointed out that ideally what we want to see is them to find these particles inside uh, humans or animals or even potentially plants uh, and purify them directly from the source if you like uh, and then be able to study those particles once they've been purified so you can look at their composition you can look at their biological properties and experiments but we think because for over a century now they haven't been able to do that that's unlikely to happen and I've developed these other techniques uh, like PCR and uh, genomics and cell culturing with the so-called cytopathic effects. Uh, and using these techniques, they're saying that is the evidence of viruses. But we've been looking into their practices and noticed that they're not doing valid control experiments. So it's not a scientific process. So we don't think even on their own terms with these techniques they're using at the moment that they'll be able to uh, reproduce the results scientifically. So what we proposed is that five labs around the world get sent split samples and some of the samples will be from healthy people, some will be from people said to have alleged COVID-19, some with influenza and some with lung cancer. And this time the labs will be completely blinded to the samples that they're getting. And we'll just ask them to tell us what's in each sample. We'll say, can you see evidence of viruses via the so-called cytopathic effects? Can you see particles that you can identify as viruses? And we also want them to do genomic testing as well. So look at the gene sequences because they tell us that SARS-CoV-2 has got this particular 
sequence about 30,000 nucleotides long. So according to them, they can tell us which of the samples contain that genome and which don't. So that's what we basically proposed. Now, interestingly, firstly, nobody contacted us and said, well, we've actually done these control experiments. So that was, we wanted to point that out to the public as step one, is that they haven't been doing things scientifically with regard to claiming that viruses exist. So that was the first point. And, but secondly, uh, many people just went straight back into the verbal sparring and tried to distract with all sorts of other uh, arguments, uh, all of which we have dealt with before. Uh, a lot of it Sam and I have dealt with uh, through articles and videos and books, uh, but many of the others in the community, obviously Stefan Lanker, the Perth group, Andy um, Kaufman, Tom Cowan, etc., have dealt with all of this kind of stuff before. So yeah, in some ways, uh, a lot of people just tried to distract it straight back into what we were saying to, to move it away from. Because what, what we're saying is just do the experiments and do it in a scientific fashion and and see if there's any legitimacy to their techniques that they're selling to the public and mm. telling the public that this is how we test for viruses. Why does it matter, Mark? Well, I think, you know, once upon a time when viruses were just a hypothesis and just involved a few people looking into this in their own private time and in private labs, I don't think it was an issue at all. And if people want to pursue that kind of thing, that's fine. But it's got to the point where, you know, you know, viruses have been accepted as fact for a long time when there is no scientific evidence that that should be the case. And we've reached the point with these uh, pandemics in quotes where they're basically shutting down the entire planet as we've seen for the last two years. Now, there have been smaller ones obviously in the past and I don't know if they were attempts to do what they've done in the last couple of years. But obviously before SARS-CoV-2, there was SARS-CoV-1 back in about uh, 2003. We've had alleged swine flus and bird flus and of course the HIV uh, invented epidemic in the 1980s as well. But all of those ones were much smaller. They involved uh, just certain parts of the world or certain uh, smaller parts of the population. Whereas virology is now getting to the point where because uh, it's accepted as being factual and scientific, uh, people are using it and, and not necessarily, I'm not saying the virologists themselves, uh, they probably believe what they're doing, most of them but it's been grasped upon by all sorts of people who, who shouldn't be in charge of the world. And they're using it as, as an excuse uh, with these anti-humanity uh, projects that they're working on. So yeah, that's why it's important. Uh, if people can see that it's not valid, uh, they can see that these nefarious plans going on uh, to shut down the world and bring about these changes have absolutely no basis to them whatsoever. And, and I think also it's about uh, understanding the true causes of illness and how to be healthy. And there is no point, I can tell you this, from all of the, the science and material that Sam and I have looked into, plus our own experience raising a family, you, you don't need any of this virological nonsense. There's, there's nothing there to help you with your health and potentially it's harmful. 
if you listen to what they're saying mm. in particular if you take their dangerous products in particular the injectable ones i've got your virus challenge uh, open here in front of me i just want to read the uh, the opening quotation a small parasite consisting of nucleic sorry nucleic acid rna or dna enclosed in a protein coat that can replicate only in a susceptible host cell that's the definition of a virus am i right yeah so that's one straight out of uh one of the virology uh textbooks and yeah that's the generally accepted uh term although these days they're trying to get away from that and distract from that and talk about other things like they just talk about the genomics you know they say that oh it's just just rna that's all we need to worry about which is completely fallacious because virology invented viruses uh they they didn't actually they never saw them and then said wow we've observed something and now let's try and come up with an explanation and test it what they were in the 1800s were were an imaginary construct so the original scientists who were looking into this thought there must be something that we can't see that's contagious and replicating and because in the 1800s the whole germ theory stuff was taking off uh, everything so many diseases and conditions were thought to be the result of these bad germs and when they couldn't see bacteria they decided there must be something smaller and the term virus started appearing initially it just meant like a, a contagious kind of element uh, a fluid contagion and then they thought it was a, a protein like an infectious protein and then by the 1950s we got to the description that you just gave which is this rogue genetic code inside the protein coat which uh infects cells and replicates and, and passes around but the, as i say the problem has been from the 1800s is that virology has just been chasing its tail it's invented this unicorn and now it's trying to uh, justify observations in the natural world mm. using this model which uh you know and even recently we've been saying it's not really even a scientific theory because a scientific theory is something that's been well established that's been tested multiple times according to the scientific method uh, it's been exposed to a massive amount of skepticism and testing etc and with virology we just we, we don't see that happening at all so to me um, viruses remain a hypothesis uh, at best uh, but they're certainly not a scientific theory and I think that's not just a problem with viruses. If you look up scientific theories mm. and really start looking into them, I, I don't think most of them should be called scientific theories. I think they're still at the hypothesis stage because they haven't been uh, tested formally uh, with, with properly controlled experiments. And a lot of science these days is what we call descriptive science. Mm. So it's just observing something and then kind of describing what you see maybe coming up with a few ideas but that's descriptive science that's not um, experimental science where you put forward a hypothesis and then try and prove yourself wrong uh, using the scientific method so yeah what we see and i think it's not as i say it's not unique to virology but it's this practice of descriptive science which is you know like you and i could observe anything in the universe 
and just write a paper and say, well, here's what we think is going on. And uh, But what needs to happen at that point is other people need to say, look, I think it's wrong for these reasons. Let, let's mm. just test it and test it and see if we can prove you wrong. And most of the time with scientific hypotheses, they end up being proven wrong. And I think virology has been proven wrong. It's just that the public is, is not aware of it at this stage. Uh, but let's just say that their description or definition of a virus is legit and it is a real thing. Where would it come from? Yeah, well, that's a almost a philosophical question. And when when you're like I was conventionally trained, and you know I spent 15, 16 years in the system. And when you're a conventional doctor, everything's based around germ theory. So you think that there's this huge battle going on between complex organisms like us and the microbes and that it's we're walking the line it's dangerous it could go wrong any stage and when you realize that, that that that's not really correct that's not how the world that's not how biology works uh yeah i agree it becomes more difficult to understand why on earth you'd have these things these viruses in existence uh it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I mean, that's getting more into philosophical considerations as well. And I mean, we don't even need to do that. We just need to say what we're, what does the science show and have these guys been adhering to the scientific method? Have they been doing controlled experiments? Uh, we can see that they haven't. So, uh, I mean, we're never going to come out and say that absolutely they don't possibly exist. I mean, I think it's it's incredibly unlikely that they do at this, how far down this thing I've gone. But uh, what we're basically saying is that the evidence that has been presented does not back up what this hypothesis is. And most virology papers are similar. Like you read the headline and the abstract, which will make a particular claim, but the, it comes apart when you read how they did the actual paper like you go through the methods section and for a lot of people they can't read that it's too complicated and and i must admit a lot of it is not written very clearly and i think that's on purpose so sometimes we have papers where we can't really work out what they did and you contact the authors and they're very cagey about giving you information particularly about any controls that they did they go oh yeah yeah we did we did some controls and I've seen multiple times now where people have said, can you just list exactly what you did? And they go, oh, it's just standard protocols and go to this website. And it doesn't, they, they won't tell you basically. And even approaching universities and major institutions like the CDC and the United Kingdom Health Security Agency. And we're publishing another paper soon, uh, myself and my co-author, Dr. John Bevan-Smith, and we've collated a lot of the, the most interesting ones and the excuses that we've been given for not disclosing what the control experiments were and all sorts of crazy answers from requesting money to generate the data, thousands of dollars, to claiming that it would compromise national security, to even... Uh, one suggested that we might use it for bioterrorism purposes so you know we don't have our own labs or anything and and we're saying to them that viruses don't exist and they're saying well we can't tell you what we're doing because you, you might make a terrible pathogen and release it so 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's a mess basically this this whole uh, yeah Mark, you do look you do look like a, a terrorist i think i wouldn't trust you with a with a with a bioweapon yeah well we had a funny chat recently with um steve falkner who who runs space busters and does some really uh, satirical videos about uh, virology and we had the same chat about bioweapons and yeah obviously when you can see that uh, viruses don't seem to exist and also look back through the history of when they were trying to make bioweapons, usually bacterial ones. Uh, they just couldn't get the product to the market. You know, it just, it's not a, it wasn't a thing. And, uh, you know, that's why previously uh, during wars and stuff, they, they really resorted to a lot of chemical type weapons because the biological stuff just it wasn't effective i mean if it was we would have seen it in much more uh you know we it would have manifested by now i've seen a sub stack i won't mention names uh, um in which an apparent virus is shown in a photograph how do you respond to that though and I've, i mean in actual fact i've seen that a lot to be honest yeah yeah he, ha he has a photograph of a virus yeah you know it's just so funny because sam and i have been doing this for two and a half years now and we, we always laugh because you, you get something like an electron micrograph for um, some other uh, form of alleged evidence genomics or um, some clinical epidemiology anything like that and i think it's it, for to us it's really amusing because they think that we, we haven't looked at this and I mean, I can tell you, we have looked at like all aspects of this and yeah, your example there is, um, micrographs, um, purporting to show viruses and yeah, I mean, so Sam did a video on this. She's got about a, a 20 minute video that people can watch at drsambailey.com or on her Odyssey channel. I'm not sure. It's probably not on YouTube that one. We can't put much on YouTube anymore, but certainly available on Odyssey and on uh, drsambailey.com, just outlining the problems of producing micrographs. So most micrographs you see will show dead tissue. Basically, you're looking at something that's uh, potentially contains a lot of artifact, but whatever it shows, the pictures you're looking at are dead. They don't show you biological function. You have to uh, invent that afterwards. So a lot of the time you'll see what we call point and declare which is you get your picture and then you add the arrows and then you go, that's the virus and that's that. And when you read the methodology for the paper, you say, well, how did you determine that? Because a virus has a very specific property and you can't just look at a vesicle, just a little bubble and say what it does or what it's composed of. That's, that's not within the capabilities of imaging. So, in other times they'll have something like bacteriophages and again they think that we haven't looked into this uh, in giant viruses now bacteriophages and giant viruses they're in the ocean that you can find them just out in the open you know you don't have to do any uh, funny experiments in labs or anything and you can take a sample of ocean water and you can purify these particles and find what are called bacteriophages and giant viruses. The problem is, is that the 
the bacteriophage means like a bacteria eater and it's supposedly when they first saw them they thought they were viruses that infected bacteria because they often saw them around these bacterial cells and they thought well those those must be the bacteriophages and they're attacking the cell but i mean since that time it's become evident that they don't they're not pathogenic at all they relate to just like a genetic lifeboat if you like uh, so when cells like bacteria get under a lot of stress and where they're potentially going to die they can form these little packages basically which uh, break away from the rest of the tissue and uh, form these little things which uh, unfortunately have been given the wrong name so you know I, I think that's what confuses people because they'll say so you guys acknowledge that bacteriophages exist and we say yes and they say aha uh -huh, but we say hang on a minute they exist but they're not they don't go around destroying bacteria so when you take those bacteriophages and you put them with healthy bacteria so bacteria that are well nourished and don't have any stresses going on they, they won't do anything at all they they don't kill the bacteria and all of the studies i've looked at where they think that they've got bacteriophages they just do things like they'll have a culture of bacteria in a petri dish and then they'll add some water from the river Ganges or something and they'll say and they make no attempt to to purify any of that and they'll put a few drops in and then if it kills some of the bacteria they'll say ah must have been the bac bacteriophages that did that so again it's using these indirect measures to fit the story really when it's not being done in a scientific way so so yeah no we look if people send us images that's fine we can have a look at them but i think what the most important thing to do is when someone gives you an image is just to say how would you know what you're looking at like uh and and people don't basically mm. um you're looking you're looking at dead tissue so that that's what you've got to ask yourself and then you go to the paper that it came from and just read the paper and say what what did it show uh and in 100 percent of cases it doesn't show anything that would prove that there's a virus in that picture but is there a case to be made that there people can collectively get ill with what would appear to be similar symptoms uh, which of course then is what leads you to the conclusion that it was something contagious yeah correct and that's the human imagination at work and i think if you've if people have that germ theory model operating in their head that that's what they'll see and you know it's like looking at other things so if you uh had a room full of 10 people and you know without them knowing put in a kilogram of weapons grade plutonium and exposed them for you know a matter of seconds 30 seconds i mean they're all going to die uh, you know of the ionizing radiation and it would look like something had infected all of them you know you'd say hey all, all 10 people were in the same room and one after the other they all died of these similar illnesses basically so i mean that's an example obviously an extreme example but a way that it appears that a whole lot of people got infected in quotes with the same thing and look i'm not saying that people 
around each other don't affect each other because we know that they do. And families in particular, if they're under the same stresses, uh, they can, even just psychologically, they can affect each other. But the thing is often people who are in groups do get exposed to the same things at the same time. So if they've got a bad water supply, uh, something wrong with the food that they've eaten, uh, some sort of incredibly stressful uh, event going on in society, all of these things can manifest as physical illnesses. And I think what people forget is that most of the time this doesn't happen. Like, you know, they talk about uh, chicken pox and we've done a breakdown of chicken pox before and why there was no virus found. But chicken pox is said to be one of the most infectious diseases caused by a virus that we know of. And um, when, you know, when I think back, I was in a family of six growing up. And when I was, I think about eight, maybe I got chicken pox and no one else in the family did. So the other five members were all perfectly fine. And I had three siblings who were all around the same age as me. They, they never got sick. Uh, my parents didn't. So, so again, I think there's this confirmation bias where people think, oh, that's right. You know, we all got sick together, but they forget all the times that that didn't happen, which is by far the most common and unfortunately it's just the way the human mind is always trying to to make these connections so yeah that would be i know we that's that's a biggie and even people who may have been following sam for a couple of years and start to really get where the science is at then they'll send an email saying oh you know last weekend all three mm -hmm. in the family came down within two days of each other and it just just made us think, is there something that that's passing around? And, and again, you know, you'd have to look into the particular circumstances, uh, but there's, there's plenty more reasons why people get sick together than inventing this contagion boogeyman. And I mean, you're probably aware now because yeah. of the sort of guests that you've had on that when they've tried to replicate contagion, it doesn't work. There's no, there's no studies whether it's influenza, measles, chickenpox, herpes, where they can show natural transmission. And, you know, even some of the alleged sexually transmitted diseases we've looked into, they were trying all sorts of things to try and get people to pass it on to other people and they just can't do it. So uh, that, that's a major problem with, um, with all of these things is that when they do the clinical studies, there's just... Um, the contagion is, is not a thing. And, and I'm not talking about it being just difficult. It seems to be impossible. Like they'll have 100% failure rates to transmit these diseases through uh, natural means. And sometimes they'll resort to silly stuff like with uh, chicken pox and measles. In the old days, they were just taking samples of fluid out of some of the lesions in a sick person injecting it into someone else, which caused a small local rash and then claiming that that was transmission when of course i mean injecting foreign material into people's skin is going to cause a skin reaction i mean that's that's not contagion uh, by any sense of the word but what about uh variables such yeah. as your immune system you know uh some people have got stronger immune systems than others yeah i, I mean when I, I was trained conventionally obviously and we learnt the term immune system. I'm a bit reluctant to use that term and 
uh, for both Sam and I looking into the stuff, we feel there's more like a detox system that your body has. And yet definitely that some people, their system is, is run down. So for instance, a big part of your detox system is the glutathione pathway. Now, if you drink a lot of alcohol or uh, ingest a lot of pharmaceuticals, you can run your glutathione levels right down, which means that any new shock to you may push you over the edge and, and put you into a healing crisis where you will manifest with um, physical symptoms, uh, which uh, in mainstream terms, they'd call infection because your body's temperature might go up. You might get uh, a runny nose and cough as your body's trying to get rid of uh, toxins. So, yep, no, I totally get what you mean. And uh, it's just that I would maybe say the immune system, again, buys into that germ theory uh, paradigm where it's this battle going on uh, with microbes trying to attack you. And I think it's not the correct model. I think there's buildup of toxic factors, not microbes. And uh, that is what causes illness or, or if you want, um, we look at it more like a healing crisis, as I say. What do you mean by that? What is a healing crisis? So that's when your body is just trying its best to restore balance. And what it can look like is that you're really unwell because you could be sweating, you could have a temperature, you could have diarrhea, you could be coughing up all sorts of muck. Your skin may break out in all sorts of reactions, uh, including vesicles, which start discharging fluids mm. uh, if you get really unwell. So that that's why we think of it more as a healing crisis. And it's the problem with allopathic or mainstream medicine is it tries to suppress those symptoms. So if the skin starts getting irritated, it puts lotions on or gives medications to, to stop the skin from reacting. Uh, they may give things to stop a runny nose or suppress a cough, um, all, all these kind of things which are not actually helpful in the long run. You may get some short-term relief by suppressing the symptoms, but what the body needs, it needs help to get through this phase as it's trying to get rid of something. So, yeah, that's what it means. Got a question from Norman um, relating to your comment earlier about uh, biolabs um, wants to know okay so then what are they making quote unquote in biolabs yeah yeah it's who, who knows in some ways but we we know from other industries uh, like the financial industry and certain rogue corporations in the past that they can certainly observe uh, absorb a lot of money <laughs> and they don't have any products coming out the other end so but no, I think um, there is work that goes on, like say with the, the likes of the spike protein, the infamous spike protein. There's, there's plenty of evidence that they've been playing with that for, you know, since uh, well, one of the first papers I saw was about 1990, describing a alleged coronavirus spike protein. Now, I, I think spike proteins exist, but they don't belong to a coronavirus. They they can be seen in the environment. They can be uh, detected in tissue breakdown experiments that are done in labs and stuff, but they don't belong to SARS-CoV-2 or other coronaviruses. So no, you can definitely, they can manipulate these sequences uh, in labs and yeah, I have no problem with that. So from what I can see, the, the bioweapon that was unleashed 
were these injections which contain a genetic code that they say makes the spike protein and to me that's the bioweapon but it's not something that's contagious now i know people get worried about the shedding and all this kind of stuff but again that sort of buys back into germ theory nonsense and from what we've looked at the attempts that they made to get shedding going or transmissible vaccines that has never worked in, in uh, animal models before and also the whole prion model where you get a protein that is supposed to be able to transmit and infect again that was just a hypothesis it was never shown to actually happen in nature so when stanley prusner put forward his idea and did some diagrams and said i think this is what's happening uh, it wasn't backed up by experimental evidence and that's that's what we always do and i know people often tell us but this and that and what we do is just go and say well we'll go back to the source documents and look at the scientific papers and see if this is possible so things like patents which say something about coronaviruses that that has nothing to do with whether you can do that uh, biologically it doesn't mean that it's plausible at all it's just a patent Totally. The people in the patent office, they don't, they're not uh, scientists who know whether these exper these concepts are possible or not. They just look through their records and say, is this something that's novel? Uh, is this something that's patentable? Not, is it plausible? So yeah, that's, that's one of the things. And also with the alleged leaked documents, the DARPA stuff, etc. I mean, again, we've read all of those documents and you don't find any evidence that they have a virus. They talk about viruses and they say about getting funding for things, et cetera. But at the end of the day, there's no, there's no evidence of any virus. So, but I mean, yeah, I mean, to know what goes on in these biolabs, I guess you'd have to get in there and have a look, but from everything we've seen, they're not making something that's transmissible. They may be making other nasty products, uh, but that's, that's as far as we can see. Is there, is there confusion created by the phrase viruses don't exist um, with perhaps viruses are not contagious? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, what gets frustrating is when people say, well, wait a second, but I think that they do exist, but they're just not as dangerous as what people say, because the word virus literally means poison and when they first observed people getting unwell with what they thought were these viral illnesses in the 1800s um you know people were very very sick um, and sometimes dying and the model was was that the whatever this virus thing was when they first thought of it that it was it was a serious problem so to then change the definition and say oh it's a transmissible particle uh, but it doesn't kill people or it's not as bad as what we thought or it shares information around uh, well that's not that's not the virus model now you're talking about something else um, and and that's fine if you, if they want to develop that hypothesis but you know as we talked about and gave the definition of a virus it's it's a pathological thing it's not um, something friendly it's supposed to be a, a parasitic entity not not a symbiotic one so you know, parasitic meaning that it damages, it harms the host. Whereas if it was a symbiotic one, it would live with the host and 
it would be advantageous to, to both uh, entities. Which is actually what germs are. They're symbiotic. I mean, without, yeah, them, yeah, without them, we die. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, when they first thought that germs were bad uh, and, you know, last century they did some fascinating experiments, um, you know, and hope, hopefully they didn't do them too much because they didn't have good outcomes, but they could get mammals at birth and they would deliver them via cesarean section, completely sterile conditions and then give them food that contain no microbes whatsoever, sterilized food, sterilized water, uh, living in these enclosures where the air was completely sterilized. And complex animals like us, uh, like mammals, can, can only survive a matter of a couple of weeks in those conditions before it's, it's completely, um, it's unlivable, those conditions. So, and as we walk around, we carry with us, you know, well over a kilogram of microorganisms at any one time and it's almost uh yeah it's, it's kind of crazy to think that we can't live without them so where does where does your body end um, and where does it start it's a difficult one because with without many of these microbes some of them are inside us uh breaking down nutrients and giving us vitamins uh, some of them are on our skin which gives us protective properties so yeah it's a it's a beautiful thing how nature works and um it's a shame that uh people yeah turned it into this war on microbes and you know we've seen some absolute disasters in the past where people have used chemicals and disinfectants thinking that this was going to help human health and it's done nothing but but make it worse we spend a lot of time um, not just you and i but this general uh this, this general discourse about viruses um, focuses a lot on viruses. But when you're talking about germ theory, you're talking about all germs, including parasites and those that you can see under a microscope that are genuinely alive. Are those also uh, not contagious? That's a, that's a more interesting one, yeah, with parasites, because, yeah, I mean, certainly there's no question that they exist because we can see them sometimes with the naked eye. Uh, and almost always with a, a light microscope. So, yeah, I mean, things like worms and that exist. It's it's a question of why uh, you get uh, things like worms. So in most developed countries, there doesn't seem to be a lot of problems with parasites. So, for instance, in a country like New Zealand, it's pretty rare to see parasitic infections. In poorer communities, they do see scabies sometimes. Um, pinworms are interesting because they seem to affect just about anyone, but they're, they're so minor, um, they cause a bit of itching and stuff, but they don't have a massive detrimental effect on humans. Um, and they may have another role that we don't understand, like, you know, whether our body does get toxic and these worms proliferate a bit more to get rid of something, it, it could be entirely possible. So. Yeah, the parasitic ones, yeah, they certainly exist. And um, I think uh, yeah, more careful study is needed to understand why they seem to affect some people far more than others. I mean, for most of us, when we're healthy, we do not seem to get any problem with parasites. Whereas when we go to poor communities, and particularly in the third world, we can see that parasites are a real problem. 
and it probably relates to just completely toxic environments and living toxic standards. living conditions yeah yeah and there's, there's some very interesting things that have been observed like um you know like sometimes when uh cows uh get a lot of glyphosate uh the herbicide into their systems they get proliferation of things like listeria and people think oh the listeria is causing problems you know for humans but it seems that that it's almost like they're trying to clean up the the environment and uh we know that that's a really important role that microbes have is that when there are things that are far too toxic for humans and other animals to go near these microbes can quite happily digest the products and return the nutrients back to the soil and and we're good to go again so yeah yeah no i'm not an I'm not an expert in parasites and it's something I'd, I'd like to, to look more into, but um, yeah, certainly I, I still don't look at it like a war that they're trying to attack us because I can say from my own experience um, and within my family, uh, if, you, if you're living healthily, the, you don't seem to get problems with parasites mm -hmm. either. And I know yeah, others are looking into this stuff. It's the same with things like malaria um, as to you know, that's a parasitic uh, type problem as well. But it does seem to also relate to um, toxic environments because the mosquitoes that we have here in New Zealand are the same as the ones they have, you know, where the malaria is, is uh, endemic. So there's no reason why our mosquitoes can't carry that sort of stuff. But for some reason, and it may be to do with swampy kind of areas or toxic environments, uh, malaria seems to affect some areas and not others. And despite the fact, as I say, that the mosquitoes are the same all around the world. But that's also interesting because a mosquito is in effect injecting you. So there isn't necessarily a germ that is traveling around in the air. No, that's correct. The, yep. The, a mosquito is uh, the vector for for the parasite, the malaria parasite. So, yeah, it is a slightly artificial one, but I still think it's as I say, malaria is not seen uh, in areas where you'd expect it, uh, because realistically, if it's bloodborne and if it's carried by mosquitoes, we should see it in far more places. It's it's definitely, as you know, it's limited to to certain areas. Um. I had a question from uh, from Norman. Uh, he says, when he was about 12 years old, uh, let me just read his question. When I was about 12 years old, we went to visit my grandparents uh, for the summer holiday. I got chicken pox and couldn't do anything. My sister came down with chicken pox two weeks later. There was no stress, presumably. So what was going on? Yeah, well, again, I can only tell you from our investigations into chickenpox that we couldn't find a virus. There was no evidence of a particle that um, fulfilled that description. And again, the transmission studies through natural routes didn't seem to work. But no, there's certainly, I mean, there was certainly some common factor that him and his sister experienced. Uh, but in saying that, I mean, it was two weeks apart. So that's interesting in itself because you know, you'd think if they were both exposed at the same time, um, if that was the theory, you'd think they'd manifest at similar times as well. Um, but yeah, again, it's uh, all, all I can say is when you look at all of the papers involving chickenpox, there's no there's no signs that you can transmit it by aerosol. That's never been a yeah. thing. 
but I'm not saying that there aren't um, factors which can uh, affect other people around you. Um, we, we certainly know that. So, yeah, I mean, some people have put forward the idea that maybe chickenpox is just like a coming of age type thing where your body just does this process. And then, because the thing is, chickenpox is, I know they talk about it differently now. If you read some information from your Ministry of Health or the CDC, they'll talk about it like it's quite a dangerous condition. If, if you actually read literature from last century, they talk about it like a joke condition, you know, like it's not serious in any way. And, you know, almost if you take 100,000 cases, almost every single one of them will be fine afterwards. And we also know that uh, if you interfere with the process by using vaccines, you push problems into the future. Like there's an association uh, in later life of getting solid uh, tumors if you don't have chickenpox when you're a kid. So again, it's something that's not uh, well understood at the moment, but it may be a process that we're supposed to go through uh, to, to get rid of something. And then in the long run, we're better off for it. So yeah, it, it's one of those things where um, unfortunately we're living in this era where people think you have to stop uh, anything like this from happening when in fact it wasn't that long ago i mean certainly when i was a kid my, my parents had no concerns when i got chickenpox they didn't mm. they didn't take me to a doctor yeah, or mine, mine too they just said oh well you know mm. <laughs> you just uh take it easy for a few days and um you'll be right and and that's what happened to all of us kids um you mentioned vaccines and um i i've chatted to roman bisjanik a few times and he's the co-author of um phenomenal book dissolving illusions um, in which they look at the official data of um, vaccines over the last century or so and in every in every instance no vaccine was required and there seems to be a correlation with improved living conditions in everything whether it's measles to polio etc i mean polio was because of, of environmental factors it wasn't a virus either mm. um, and it does it does correlate quite strongly with better living conditions and and uh, sorry the, the correlation is improved health and better living conditions definitely and i would advise all of the audience if you haven't read that book dissolving illusions it's one of the best reads that you could um ever hope for amazing book um roman and susan just systematically break down the figures absolutely beautifully and I think what was great about that book was that they took data that went right back as far as they could. It wasn't this misleading data that we see where they show us the last couple of decades or what happened since the 1980s. And as you know, once you put it in context and you see that trend where these diseases were basically, particularly the mortality rates were, were almost going down to zero uh, when in the 1800s they'd been quite serious and uh, had very high fatality rates. So absolutely. Um, most vaccines came along so late in the piece that they had absolutely mm -hmm. nothing to do with the decline. And you'll see very um, deceptive things um, being reported. And the CDC is one of the worst at doing this, where they'll say something like, since the introduction of vaccines, the incidence or the mortality has gone down by a factor of four. And then you actually look at the charts going back 100 years, and you realize, well, 100% of the, the, the decrease had happened 
by the time they introduce the vaccine. So by claiming that, you know, these improvements, they were talking about going from four and a hundred thousand down to two and a hundred thousand or something, mm. which is hardly an improvement at all. It sounds impressive to say, wow, we've halved it. But when over the past century, it had come down by a factor of a hundred or more, you know, that that's what tells the real story. So correct. Yeah. I mean, mm. when, um, you know, obviously again, we were trained conventionally. So initially we thought that vaccines were okay and we got them ourselves. And I stopped around a decade ago uh, because I got suspicious that they weren't really helping at all. And I was, I, I was super healthy. So I thought, well, I'm not really getting sick, so I'm, I'm not going to take any of these. And, um, and it was really a couple of years ago that we took the much deeper dive into vaccines and one by one, we just realized that, um, there was no need for any of them. And, you know, we stopped giving them to our kids and advised all family members to stop getting them. And I mean, it's something, it, it's really difficult for people when they first hear this stuff, because it, it can be a bit of a shock to the system. But once you've uh, been through that, particularly if you've read a book like Dissolving Illusions and some other material, you can start to see that, yeah, there's, there's, there's no point to taking these vaccines. Um, part of the problem, obviously, from our point of view is that the, the viruses don't even exist. So why would you take something like a measles vaccine mm. uh, when the virus doesn't even exist? Um, you can only, and I'm not saying that it does, the product doesn't do anything because it does, but it can be quite detrimental what it does. And it may, it's like the chickenpox vaccine. It may actually interfere with you getting chickenpox, but that doesn't mean that there's a chickenpox virus. It just means that you've interfered with a bodily process and which can be a real problem mm. so yeah no in short um from from my point of view having looked at what we have for several years now there's there's no vaccine uh including tetanus that you'd be wise to take uh but it's something people just have to get comfortable with with their own rabies. research what about rabies yeah we got a video coming out next week on rabies depending on when you're <laughs> when this goes live but um we yeah because that's a classic we call it the joker card where you're having a discussion and people are accepting that there's all these problems and then oh mm. they say what about rabies ah, we've got yeah you. we've got you. got you so yeah sam got asked so many times to make a video about rabies so we've got a really really good one coming out um very soon and hopefully it answers all people's questions and spoiler alert we couldn't find a virus and uh yeah the thing is with rabies too we're not saying that rabies doesn't exist it's an incredibly serious disease i mean the fatality rate is through the roof it's incredibly mm. dangerous but that doesn't mean that there's a virus and um we'll expand on um some ideas about what might yeah. actually be happening yeah. uh but we've known i mean this is not news to people but um sometimes if you read some health advice you think that if you get bitten by a rabid dog that you're in so much trouble people they, they cause the panic button and we know that almost every time even if the dog is rabid and bites you your chance of actually getting full-on rabies is is virtually nil it's not that high but you wouldn't you wouldn't appreciate that by reading most um, medical advice which will uh, is terrible but i think it um 
it honestly terrifies people. They think that if they get bitten by a dog, they're, they're in big trouble where, where usually they're not. Let me read you uh, one or two comments. Uh, so we've got a lady by the name of Beth. She says, yes, when my daughter got chicken pox, she just got to stay home from creche for a week whilst the spots healed. She didn't even get a fever. Yeah, totally. And um, mm. I think that's the thing. That's our experience of it is that it's not a serious condition. But the problem is now, as I say, like I'm disgusted when I read like official health information from national organizations and world organizations. They're now making out as though this is so dangerous that your kids could get massive complications. And if you actually look at the literature, a healthy child that gets these conditions just comes straight out of it virtually mm. you you can find cases of complications with chicken pox and measles etc but the stuff we find is that usually the child's already unwell with other problems like they may have like a, a childhood cancer or um, they may have had problems from birth they are not usually normal healthy kids uh, because normal healthy kids that get things like chicken pox that just bounces off them basically um she's also asking about tetanus shots why do we get those after a dog bite yeah well that, that we've done a um uh, a tetanus video um it's it's one of sam's few videos that's just on her members site only so it's not publicly out there but i can tell you that yeah there's these big issues with tetanus where what happened is that they said that it was caused by this clostridium bacteria and then most of the time that people get tetanus they can't actually find this bacteria and sometimes they do find the bacteria but the person doesn't have tetanus so again like rabies tetanus is a condition that your body goes into and it can be very serious uh, like rabies but it doesn't mean that it's caused by a bug and in the case of um, tetanus they say it's a toxin that the clostridium bacteria produces and we went back to all of the original papers going back to the late 1800s early 1900s trying to find out how they established that this was the case and there's no scientific papers that establish that that's the case and I think what's happened is a real tragedy because tetanus, as I say, is a condition and that's, you need to treat the condition. So you need to pay attention to what's happening to the person and not mm. blame these microbes that are not causing any problems. So tetanus is a classic one where they know that, that they're telling you it's caused by bacteria, but their treatments don't work. Like their antibiotics and stuff are useless and, um, yet they still try that kind of stuff and they even try and vaccinate people uh, who, who develop clinical tetanus they try and give them mm. a vaccine which again is completely it's just absolutely stupid you're doing things that could cause even more harm while not treating the the condition so and the other thing we did was look back through all of the cdc's data and my goodness it was misleading like in one section they they tried to make out that it was just unvaccinated people who were getting tetanus. And then we looked at how they'd actually done the classifications. And one of them, they put in the unvaccinated basket because the people had had vaccines, they just couldn't remember how many, like, you know, they'd had quite a few. 
and they said oh because they couldn't remember exactly how many they put them in the unvaccinated uh, category i mean that is so disingenuous you can't believe that health organizations do this kind of thing mm. and some of the other ones they were putting in the unvaccinated had had tetanus vaccines but it was like 12 years ago or something so they said oh no that's that's unvaccinated and they were putting as many cases of tetanus as they could into the unvaccinated category but when you actually went back through it it told a completely different story and basically it made no difference whatsoever um, if people had had vaccines or not um a comment that i've seen quite often now um in the last few months is okay so you're critiquing germ theory but you're not providing an alternative answer yeah well i guess there's, there's two things there one is that to disprove a theory you you don't have to you're not obliged to provide another one that's that's not a scientific thing so if, if you can show if you can falsify something a theory that's it's the theory's done it's like you know you've shown that it's not the correct one and i think that's that's been done with germ theory um but i know what you mean people are saying well what is what is the explanation then and we'd say well firstly when 99.9% of funding and efforts have gone into trying to propagate this germ theory stuff. It's pretty difficult because nobody's getting grants or um, funding to, to look into alternative explanations. Like, for instance, in today's era, you couldn't, you wouldn't get funding for a paper to say, I'm going to do a paper to show that SARS-CoV-2 probably doesn't exist. Your university is going to say no. There'll be no interest from the pharmaceutical industry in funding that kind of study. It just won't happen. They will fund mm -hmm. the things which suit them, which is to keep a certain narrative going. So, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. And, and we just think, well, we're the, the group of us that question uh, viruses and germ theory. We're a pretty, as you know, we're a tiny group compared to the um, structures that we're up against, which is most David of the and, world. David so, and Goliath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll win eventually, but it's uh, it's quite hard. <laughs> we don't have all the resources at our disposal and most um, scientists and uh, and that around the world are not really interested in helping out with this sort of thing. So, yeah, but I think, um, you know, obviously there's terrain theory, which is um, has been put forward for a long time. I mean, since the 1800s, really, um, with uh, Bichamp. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, it's not new. No, that, that's it. And if you actually read mm. some of the old material, it actually uh, makes a lot of sense. And even uh, for the, the rabies video, I dug up a, a letter from 1909 written by Dr. Montague Levison, who was clearly in the terrain camp. And he was really critical of what the mainstream were doing by calling smallpox an entity, by making out that it was this contagious entity. And he said, you know, it might be news to you, but this is not an entity. It's a condition. And that's where you're making the mistake. It's a condition that people get in that you've got to help them with. And by focusing on this entity thing, you're making huge mistakes. And he was so critical of the vaccines they were using uh, for both smallpox and rabies. He was pointing out to them that, and it's really interesting seeing these old figures uh, because they're not the sort of figures you see presented these days to us, but 
he had the figures year by year showing that the introduction of these vaccines had made things worse basically that um the incidence of rabies went um went up significantly after they started jabbing people with the alleged rabies vaccine uh beth wants to know uh, should we be vaccinating pregnant women at all no from i mean from my point of view you don't vaccinate at all so and particularly not pregnant women and i mean i know they pressure you too it's um you know the last um our youngest is just just about a year old so we were uh in the system recently uh with sam being pregnant and yeah of course the the first thing they say to her is oh you should get this jab and that jab you know and um but no once you get to the point where you see that none of it makes any sense and you don't yeah and certainly not pregnant woman but i'd say nobody kids adults elderly pregnant woman no nobody nobody should be getting these products and i think the tragedy with vaccines also has been that it leads people to do this outsourcing of their health so they think that oh, all my jabs are up to date um i've had my kids they're, they're all up to date with their jabs and now we're done and it's just the most terrible uh, health model that you can imagine whereas if you think um, from a holistic point of view and look at mm. everything you can do to make your life healthy your outcomes will be so much better and i mean we know this from um you know sam and her virus mania co-authors they write to the big institutions um robert Koch institute and so forth and they just put really simple questions to them like can you show us one study where yeah. these vaccinated kids have better outcomes and not one of these institutions has ever dared have a go at saying that there is a paper that shows that that is definitely proven to be the case so i mean i think it's pretty telling that you have health authorities around the world wholesale promotions going on of these vaccines without having proper um, studies which would show that they're a benefit and i i think I mean, it's likely to be really bad because the studies that you do see published uh, are likely to, a lot of them are fraudulent, basically, or they're industry sponsored. And you can see they're not properly designed anyway yeah. to show what you want. But I would suggest that they're, they're not doing the studies because they know that the outcomes are bad or the ones that they've done have shown that they do so bad, you know, compared to the unvaccinated group that that they don't want to publish it. And even some of the ones we've seen was published, like yeah. uh, some of the influenza ones. I'm surprised they even published them because they basically say it doesn't help. Uh, or they'll say something like it reduces influenza, but you get sick in so many other ways um, that, you're, that you're more likely to go to hospital, et cetera. So, I mean, yeah, it's, um, I think the whole vaccine thing, it's, um, it's you know, I think it's it's a medical disgrace and uh, the medical profession are going to have to have this discussion sometime about why they're so tied up with vaccinations and why well in some ways we yeah we know why <laughs> we we've found out too that if you start questioning vaccines um, you get in a lot of trouble and um, you know certainly there's been some physicians in the us who have provided amazing data just showing their own experiences and um showing that uh, delaying or or not even using vaccines leads to these really good outcomes and what happens instead of being welcomed for 
their contributions to the scientific knowledge, they lose their medical license because the industry decides that um, they don't want to hear that story. Mm. Let's come in for a landing. And uh, a question that I ask everybody um, is this is this one. A mark in front of you, this uh, crystal ball. What do you what do you see? Well, I mean, I just see the crystal ball, of course. I, I, I don't like making predictions. I don't have some special ability to do that. But, um, you know, I, I think very much like as a family, we, um, we concentrate on total presence of um, each day, just making sure we're maximizing everything we do rather than look into the future because yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know. I think we, we could, um, in six months, you know, this whole thing could be over and the world could be looking good. And, or in a hundred years, it might be terrible and someone might be digging up this podcast and saying, oh my goodness, <laughs> they were having this discussion a hundred years ago and we're still not there. It's still, um, you know, still being uh, discussed today. So, yeah, I, I, I'm always reluctant to, to make, uh, predictions like that but uh, I mean I, 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 we remain like really optimistic and I think that's that's the way to be especially you know uh, to inspire um, mm. the younger generation kids and that so yeah where can I find you or I suppose your wife <laughs> yeah, yeah. drsambailey.com <laughs> is the best place to... <laughs> we, that um... sounded so creepy <laughs> Uh, yeah. I know, but it, as you know, Sam's platforms got really big, uh, and and then they got so big that she had to involve me, and now we're both doing this full time, and and what what we might do is set, set up something on her website, like an about Mark page or something, or or, or redirect um, because <laughs> when um, the thing is, and and you know this, Jim, because you know us, but um, when when you see one of us. Uh, on screen or in an article or whatever it, it's always both of us like mm. we work on e everything together um, there's, there's nothing that goes out that both of us haven't um, touched so yeah it's um <laughs> so what you're saying is everybody must uh, uh, follow your wife <laughs> yeah that's the way it is. Yeah. you know initially um when, when sam first started doing the youtube in early 2020 uh, and, and some people were saying, they were saying to me, oh, why don't you get on the camera and stuff? And I just thought at that stage, it was really Sam's thing and she was, it was taking off so quickly and I, I didn't want to, uh, spoil anything or, or change the recipe she'd developed. But, uh, within a few months, she just got overwhelmed with the amount of work that was required and the amount of research that was needed. So, so I started in the background in early 2020. And yeah, it really wasn't until uh, late 2020 where people even knew I existed or even into 2021. So, well, I think, you know, Sam's nature is amazing. She's the most disarming person that mm. you can imagine. And it's, um, it, it's really weird. And she doesn't get that many attacks, but, you know, obviously she gets some online attacks and nobody would do that to her in real life people really gravitate to her she's but just that's, the loveliest that's actually something that is across the board have you noticed on the internet people can be vicious and brutal and savage in real life 
it's not nearly as bad as that when you interact with somebody totally yeah yeah mm. and um no, absolutely and it's the one downside for the the internet is that it does bring it down and people don't think about the person they're attacking but i mean and, and it's such a wasteful activity like um, yeah. for instance when people try and do smear attacks against sam or anything the thing is she to be honest she doesn't even read them like it wouldn't it usually wouldn't make it past the admin or me um so she does she uh, uh, most of the time she doesn't even she's not aware of these things and if someone really says oh you've got to read this article about you she's just like she's she's just not interested she's mm -hmm. like what's the point so and, and it doesn't change what we do like uh you know we're on a, a path here to keep looking into things and sharing the information as we learn about it too so yeah that kind of the the attacks um i've seen some funny ones against you as well so. <laughs> i also get them <laughs> yeah 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 and it's really really weird because knowing you and what you're like and then reading these kind of yes. um attacks, it's just it's just ridiculous yeah. mark Beatty, thank you for joining me in the trenches my pleasure jim don't go anywhere my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.